Good morning. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here, and I got the privilege of working back through that story in Acts and drawing out some of the implications of what God is saying to us in there. I might just move this back a little bit. It feels like it's popping there for you. Uh, I don't know if you've wanted to go on a trip to Europe and COVID has stopped that for you, but today we get to go to Europe. So it might not be the holiday of a lifetime for Paul, but we'll track with him through his journey and see what happened there. Let me pray as we get underway. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Troublemaker. Disruptive, subversive. Some of you have been called those things by teachers, by parents. Uh, Some of you wear those titles like badges of pride. Yeah, I'm a rebel. You like being called those things. Uh, Others of us, most of us probably don't want to be labelled like that. We just want to fly under the radar in our work, in our family, in our society. Uh, We don't want to be known as troublemakers. And that's a good desire. That's a right desire. Uh, It would be a bad thing to just cause trouble for the sake of causing trouble. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, we're encouraged as Christians to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, to get on with work. But in this story that we've just read, in Acts 16 and 17, we see that Christians who live in a city full of people worshipping other gods, Allah, Mother Earth, humanity. Uh, To be a Christian in this kind of city that we live in is necessarily disruptive. Our presence and our message cause trouble for those around us who are living with different values. We need to be prepared for that. We need to not shy away from that. Have a look at the accusation that was brought against the early Christians as they went into Europe. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So that it's an accusation of subversion, of disruption. These Christians, they're turning the world upside down. We've got to stop them. And so that's the theme we're going to press into today as we travel with Paul through Europe. Here's the big idea up on screen. You can write it down and take some notes on your way throughout. The gospel disrupts the orders of society as God keeps saving people. The gospel, this news about Jesus, it disrupts the orders of society as God keeps saving people. So let's go on our Europe tour. Our first stop is Philippi. See what makes the gospel so disruptive here. There's a map up on screen so you can follow the journey along. Hopefully you can recognise some of the different places up there and and place this in the world. Italy over on the side kind of gives you your setting there. Uh, It helps to remember that when we're reading Acts, this is not fantasy, this is not fiction, this is real history, real people going to real places. And so here the Apostle Paul, he's on his second missionary journey. He's with Silas and Timothy. You might recall if you were here last week that he split up with Barnabas. They had their little disagreement over John Mark. So now you've got John, Silas and Timothy, uh, Paul, Silas and Timothy. And Paul's retracing the steps of his first mission journey. So if you see Antioch, I think it's over on this side. Is Antioch on this side? 
If I got it right? Yeah, there we go. Uh, so Antioch, the one on the far side, there's two of them. Paul starts off at that first one. He goes up through Derby and Lystra. That's retracing his steps. Then he tries to head into this interior region called Asia, kind of just below where Galatia is there. But God has different plans. So the start of chapter 16, you read about Paul and Silas trying to go to these different regions, but God stops them, hems them in, so they end up down on the coastline in Troas, and from there, they head over to Macedonia, to Philippi. So get your Bible open at Acts 16, and we'll pick up the story at verse 13. Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Such a short little account, so simple, and yet a life has just been totally transformed. Lydia here, she's a somewhat wealthy woman. She's selling purple cloth, which was hard to come by at this time. So maybe think of someone that's selling silk or cashmere. You're kind of in that realm. Lydia's got her own household. She'll end up hosting this little church that forms in Philippi. So Lydia, she's a well-off woman. And God saves her. Did you notice the language of verse 14? The Lord opened her heart to respond. Something that would have looked so ordinary. There's people down at a river having a conversation, a woman listening to a message and being persuaded that it's true. That's actually a profound work of God. And this is helpful for us as we work through Acts to kind of caution us because sometimes we can only see God's hand in the things that look extraordinary or supernatural. We think of God as a bit of that God of the gaps. If there's something that I can't explain in any other way, well, that's, that's where God's at work. God's doing the things that look crazy, that look miraculous. But what this reminds us of is that God is always at work, even in things that just look very natural. A person being persuaded by a message about the truth looks so normal. But that's a work of God. That is God opening Lydia's heart. God saves Lydia. Paul continues on in Philippi, and next up we meet a slave girl. She's got a spirit, powerful spirit being who enables her to tell the future. This girl is very different to Lydia. Lydia's wealthy. This girl is a slave who makes her owners wealthy. Lydia's respected. This girl is used. But the spirit that's with her recognises who Paul is. She's following them around, crying out, verse 17... These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. That's true, isn't it? She's got a true insight. And you might think, well, this is helpful, right? A groupie now following Paul around, affirming that Paul's a messenger of God. Any press is good press, right? Not for Paul, it seems. After a few days of her following them around, it says, Paul got really annoyed. And he commanded the spirit to leave the girl. Now, is this just Paul getting sick of like, you know, when your kids, they just keep talking. You go, I wish you'd just go away. Is that what's happening for Paul? I don't think so. I think there's something more going on for Paul here. Now, we're not told explicitly, but there's a hint in the language that Luke uses. The word that he uses to talk about the girl's fortune telling, it's a word that comes up a few times in the Old Testament, 
And it's always condemned as an evil activity, something that Israel's not to be involved in at all. So by using that word, my guess is that Paul sees this girl as associated with evil, and he doesn't want people getting confused. He doesn't want the people of Philippi thinking that somehow Jesus is connected to this evil act of divination. Jesus is somehow connected with all of these spirits of the underworld. I was trying to think of what that might be like today, and I thought it'd be like turning up to church and seeing church sponsored by McDonald's. You know, that's, that's a bit weird. We have that love-hate relationship with McDonald's. You know, we, we love to give them lots of money. They're a huge business, we, so we pay them lots. But we kind of resent ourselves when we do. Like, oh, it's a weird association. And to see church associated with McDonald's, you'd think, oh, is there something corrupt going on here? What's the deal? So I think that's what's going on with the slave girl. Paul doesn't want people confused. So he casts out this evil spirit. He doesn't want her sponsorship. Now, the girl's owners are not very happy with this. Have a look at verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews, and they're promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. And suddenly, Paul and Silas are seen as troublemakers, disruptive, subversive. Why? Because they've cost some men their money. I mean, they've liberated a girl from an evil spirit. That's a wonderful moment of salvation to rejoice in. But not for the men who were using her as their slave. Paul and Silas have disrupted their comfortable life, their Roman customs, their Roman religion, and they don't like that one bit. And so Paul and Silas end up in prison. It's a fairly graphic description. They're stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, severely flogged, and they're put into the inner prison and chained up by their feet. As the blood dries and the bruises form, Paul and Silas are in there in prison singing and praying to God. There's a little note of inspiration for us, isn't it? When we face opposition as Christians, even if it does get at some stage to the point where we're publicly beaten up and thrown in prison, rejoice. Paul and Silas can sing because they know that they're not alone in that prison. It's dark and they've got each other, but more than that, they've got God. God is there with them in that prison by his spirit. And they know that what they are suffering is the same kind of thing that God himself suffered. Jesus, stripped of his clothes, whipped and beaten, bleeding and bruised. It's like Peter says in his first letter, 1 Peter 4 verse 12. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual was happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. That's how Paul and Silas can be singing as their blood dries and their bruises form in prison. Opposition ought not surprise us as Christians in Auckland. Our message about Jesus will be seen as troublemaking, 
Because we're still in the business of calling people to think of something as more important than making money or pursuing pleasure and comfort. And that will disturb the vast proportion of our city who are pursuing as much money as they can get or as much comfort and pleasure as they can pack into their life. And when you say to your boss, sorry, I can't stay and work late tonight. I've I've got Bible study to go to. Or, yeah, look, sorry, boss, I'm not going to lie for you in this situation. I know that would mean more money for you and more money for the company, but I can't betray Jesus by lying. When you say to your extended family, sorry, I I can't come to brunch with you. It's, It's Sunday morning. I'm going to church. Just by following Jesus. We subvert, we, we critique the customs of Auckland. Back in Philippi, Paul and Silas, they're singing away at midnight. Suddenly there's an earthquake, it causes the prison doors to open up, all the prisoners' chains come loose. You're like, oh, it's an open door, we better walk through the open door. No, that's not a good view of guidance. Paul and Silas don't walk through this open door. Sometimes God opens doors just so that you kind of leave them there and sometimes he has closed doors so you'd push a bit harder Uh, Paul and Silas, they stay in prison, and when the prison guard wakes up, he's freaking out that he's lost all his prisoners. That would be really shameful for him. He'd get pretty badly punished for not doing his job well. But Paul calls out to him, don't hurt yourself. We're all still here. And the jailer comes in. He's obviously been impacted in some way by Paul and Silas. I imagine he's heard their singing. He's heard their prayers. And he's thinking, these guys are a bit crazy. Like, this is, they're in prison. They're singing. What's going on? He knows they're in prison for talking about Jesus, so he comes in at this point and he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? What a question. You wish you got asked that more often, yeah? And perhaps you're here today and this is your question. As you think about God, you know that you and God are not on good terms. You know that you're in trouble with God and that you need saving. What must I do to be saved? The answer is beautifully simple in verse 31. Have a look and see. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice what the answer is not. Paul doesn't say, love people better and then you'll be saved. He doesn't say, clean up your act, get your life sorted out and then you'll be saved. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Nothing else will get you into God's good books. Believe, trust that Jesus is God and that he is good. Believe that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and rose to new life to secure you eternal life. Come to Jesus. Come to him as the Lord, the ruler of your life, and listen to what he has to say. Trust his promises. Build your life on his word. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's not a maybe. It's not a perhaps you might just scrape through on judgment day. If you come to Jesus and call him Lord, you will be saved. If that's you this morning, then please come to Jesus. And we'd love to be with you and rejoice with you. The Philippian jailer, when he put his trust in Jesus that night, it was a happy night. Have a look at verse 34. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. 
His life was changed that night. He walked into his shift at odds with God, facing God's anger, looking ahead at an eternity cut off from God. But he came home from work at peace with God, saved, safe and secure and looking forward to an eternity with God. And so that could be you today. Yeah, you might have walked in at odds with God and you could walk out today at peace with God, reconciled with God, rejoicing because you've been saved from God's anger, saved to enjoy God for all eternity. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The next day, Paul and Silas, they get released from prison. They head to Lydia's house where they encourage this group of Christians, this new church. I want you to try to picture with me this church in Lydia's house. You've got loaded Lydia, the well-off businesswoman in her household. Then you've got the, the scrappy slave girl, this girl who's been taken in and cared for as she's cast off as useless by her owners. And then you've got the gruff prison guard, this Roman soldier with his family. It, it's an odd collection of people, this kind of hodgepodge mix of people coming together in unity. And in that mix of people, that itself is disruptive. The church is a disruptive movement as it cuts through the civilised class distinctions of ancient Rome. The hierarchies that might be at play in society outside, that they don't hold within the church. In the church, the rich and the poor, the sanitised and the scruffy come together. God saves all kinds of people. He brings them together in this profound unity of joy. The gospel disrupted the order of society in Philippi as God saved people. And so Paul, he's out of prison, he heads to his next stop. You can get the map back up there, he goes from Philippi down to Thessalonica. Not too far of a travel. Uh, chapter 17, Paul does his usual thing in Thessalonica. Thessalonica? Thessalonica? Yeah, take your pick. Thessalonica, I reckon. Uh, he's preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, the Jewish meeting places there. Uh, it's interesting, verse 2 and 3 emphasise that Paul's message is from the Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. You know, Paul and the Apostles, they're not bringing something new. They're proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. That Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. That he is the eternal King of Israel. They're reasoning with people, persuading people. And a whole bunch of people get persuaded. Again, you might notice it's a diverse bunch. There's Jews, there's Greeks, there's leading women, some more wealthy ones of the city. Now, this time in Thessal Thessalonica, the, the Jews get jealous. They form a mob and they start a riot. We've seen some pictures of riots recently coming out from America a few months back. It's a scary moment when you've got a riot. Scary time in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas, they're still fresh off their beating in Philippi. Now there's a mob coming for them. So they hide out. The mob can't find them. They take Jason. And this is where we get that accusation that I read back at the start. Acts 17, verse 6. We're in Thessalonica. This is the accusation against the Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees saying there is another king, Jesus. Now I want to ask you the question, is that accusation true? It should be up there on the screen for you to read. Have a think about that. Are Paul and Silas acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, 
saying there is another king than Caesar. I'm going to put you on the spot. I want a show of hands. Uh, who thinks no, that that accusation is not true? Stick up your hand if you're going for a no. I've got a few no's, a few shy no's. Who thinks the answer is a yes, that that accusation is true? A few more. Uh, who's too scared because you're just scared to be wrong in public? Yeah, a couple. Good. Well, look, apart from the scared people, uh, you're all kind of right. Okay? This is one of those ones where it's, it's true, but not necessarily in the way that Caesar would be worried about. Yeah? In a very important sense, this accusation is true. See, Paul and Silas, they are saying that Jesus is another king alongside Caesar. In fact, they're saying that Jesus is a much more important king than Caesar. They're saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the eternal king, whose kingdom transcends every other earthly kingdom and whose kingdom will never end. But they're not agitating for a rebellion against Caesar. They're not going around tearing down statues of Caesar and going, you're not my king, Jesus is my king. They are saying that you know, if Caesar decrees something that goes against what Jesus says, well, they'll follow Jesus, not Caesar. But they're not trying to assassinate Caesar. They're not trying to liberate Thessalonica from Caesar's empire. In fact, as you read through Acts, and as you read the early Christians after this time defend themselves to Rome, the Christians were good citizens, helpful citizens. They were hard workers. So the Christian message is very subversive. The Labour Party, Jacinda, are not the most important authority over New Zealand. They come second to Jesus. Jesus is the King of Kings. That's a bold thing to say, a subversive thing to say. And if you're living in a land where the ruling regime want to be the only power, the only authority in the land, well, the Christian message will trouble them. They'll do everything they can to quash it because they want to be the only authority. Christian message is subversive, but it doesn't lead us to active rebellion. We ought not, as Christians, think about a violent uprising against the government, whoever is in power. We wait for, we long for the day when Jesus will return as the true king and rule over the world with perfect justice. That will be the day when the evils of the world are brought to an end. No more housing crisis, no more meth, no more gangs, no more underfunded health systems, no more infants or elderly being killed. We wait and we pray that our government in the meanwhile will rule with wisdom. Thanks, Matt, for praying that for us earlier. We pray that they'll rule with wisdom for the good of all. And we proclaim that Jesus is the true king. That's how the gospel turns the world upside down. Not through violent rebellion and uprising, but as people hear the simple message that Jesus is king, as they believe that message and are saved and they start living in a new way, the gospel disrupts the orders of society as God keeps saving people. Back in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas, they've escaped the mob and now they gap it overnight down to Berea. They head straight for the synagogues there to talk about Jesus. They get a very different response. Have a look at Acts 17, verse 11. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness. And examine the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women, as well as men. Now, there's an example to be inspired by, isn't it? The Bereans searched the Scriptures. They heard this message about Jesus and went, well, let's open up our Bible and see what it actually says. Daily, they're examining the Scriptures, testing what Paul was saying, checking that he's not making it up. Can I urge us as a church to please be like that? The preacher, me, in this case today, I'm not the authority of your life. God is, and he has spoken by his word. You should only care about what I have to say insofar as it lines up with what's in the Bible, and you can see that for yourselves. So take what you hear on Sundays and check it, test it, read the Bible daily to see what God is actually saying. If you've been sitting there kind of looking at the screen, frustrated that I'm referring to verses and you're not seeing them up there, it's because I want you to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can see it so that you're familiar with the Bible and where these things are and you can flick and check and see. In your connect groups this week, you know, don't just say, well, Lachlan said we shouldn't be involved in violent uprisings and kick our government out of power. Test the Bible, see if that's actually true. Can you see it in there? God is your authority, not me, not anyone else that stands up here and preaches, only God as he speaks by his word. And so the Bereans were more noble, They did the noble thing, examining the Scriptures, and as they did that, many of them believed. Notice that word, consequently, as a result of checking the Scriptures, many of them believed. And it created this new church, again, another hodgepodge mix of people cutting across the divisions of society. Then the dodgy Thessalonians, they found out that Paul was in Berea. They brought their mob down, tried to stir up opposition again. And Paul got out of there and went on to Athens. The kids' talk unpacked for us a bit of what happens in Athens there. I'd love to press into that with you this morning. But you get a chance to look at that bit in connect groups. Uh, And I need to bring this to a close. Let me say one quick thing about Paul in Athens. He gets there and he continues talking about Jesus. In the synagogue, in the marketplace, every day he's talking to people about Jesus. That challenges me. And I think there's a challenge here for many of us. Just think about what Paul has faced by the time he reaches Athens. He's been beaten up and imprisoned in Philippi. He's started a riot against him in Thessalonica and kind of had a mob chasing after him. That mob has then come down to Berea and chased him away there. But he keeps talking about Jesus. I'd be tempted to stay silent at that point. I'm like, I've faced a bit of rejection here. Maybe it's time for me to go quiet, go hide out. But not for Paul. He keeps talking. And it makes me think of kind of our recent uh, emphasis on friendship evangelism or relationship evangelism. I think there can be a subtle danger with that. Relational evangelism is the model that encourages us to go deep in some friendships share life with people and then share Jesus, share the gospel with those friends. Now, that is a great thing to do. I want to say keep doing that. I'm not critiquing that entirely. I'm just saying there's a little danger there because I think we can get stuck when those friends reject the message of Jesus. We can think, oh, well, I've done my dash. 
I've tried talking to all my friends. They don't want anything to do with Jesus, so I'll just stop. Paul doesn't do that. When he gets rejected in one place, he moves on to the next. There are always more people that need to hear about Jesus. So let's keep sharing life with friends. Let's keep showing them what Christianity looks like, lived out in relationships. Let's keep talking to friends about Jesus. But let's also strike up conversations with strangers about Jesus. When you meet that person at a Christmas party next month, where do they stand with Jesus? How can you bring that into the conversation and, and talk to them about this one who is the eternal king? When you sit next to someone on the bus, at the bus stop, at the footy, what do they know about Jesus? What's their view? You might even walk up to complete strangers in the park, knock on people's doors, try to start a conversation with them about who Jesus is. Don't let rejection turn you to silence, but let's be inspired by Paul and let's move on to the next person, the next city, the next conversation, because God keeps saving people. In Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, just like he did with Lydia, the Lord keeps opening people's hearts that they might receive the message that Jesus is King. He's still doing that today. In our city, keep preaching the message of Jesus. Yes, you'll be seen as a troublemaker, as disruptive, as subversive, because that's the nature of our message. We're calling people to something that is contrary to the orders of our society. We're telling people that Jesus is God's eternal king, the judge of the whole world. We'll be seen as troublemakers, but that's nothing new. Don't shy away from that. As in the time of Acts, so today the gospel disrupts the orders of society as God keeps saving people. So as you look ahead at the coming week, how will this story of Acts be continued in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who saves. We've not loved you as we ought. We've not loved our neighbours as we ought. But in Jesus, you forgive us. Thank you. Please keep saving people this week. Give us boldness by your spirit to speak of Jesus, even when we're considered disruptive, subversive, even if we're thrown into prison or kicked out of town. Help us to be good citizens, so that it's not our sinful behaviour that sees us opposed. But please strengthen us to face opposition for your disruptive gospel that turned the world upside down in the first century and keeps turning the world upside down today. We ask this in Jesus' name, that he would be as famous as he deserves to be in this city of Auckland. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.